This is Undisciplined. I'm Shoshana Buxbaum. For the first time, the National Institutes of Health, the NIH for short, publicly acknowledged the existence of structural racism within the field of biomedical sciences, and they've released their plan on how to address the problem. And that's a pretty big deal because the NIH is the single biggest funder of biomedical research in the country, to the tune of roughly $40 billion a year. But Black researchers receive just about half of the NIH funding compared to their white peers, and that figure hasn't changed in a decade. Neither has the number of Black scientists with PhDs working in STEM. That number hovers at just about 2%. There's a chorus of researchers calling on the NIH to change the way they allocate their funds. Among them is Lola Aniola Adafeso. She's a professor of chemical engineering at the University of Michigan. She's also the co-author of an editorial in the journal Cell called Fun Black Scientists. Lola Aniola Adafeso, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. I am delighted to be on this program to talk about what I think is a very, very important problem that we must tackle. Yeah. So going back to that editorial that you were a co-author on back in February, you sort of pointed to the importance of like naming this as a problem. There is structural racism within this field and within the NIH. Like what's the importance of sort of like publicly saying like, okay, this is a problem that we need to deal with? Well, I think just like anything that we deal with in our society, the first step is always to acknowledge there is a problem. So it is a big deal uh, that NIH for the first time has openly said this because then it highlights to the field, we need to work on finding solutions to the problem. Yeah. And so let's sort of break down a little bit of what's in this NIH report. So they're sort of, they're pledging to increase funding for like diversity and inclusion, also for additional funding for different types of research, like health disparities and equity and stuff like that. So what do you make of sort of like what they've outlined in this report? So what NIH has laid out in their plan, by and large, are not new. These are things that they have been doing, I would argue, over a decade now since the original uh, publication came out uh, highlighting the problem. My point being that they have a lot of good things that they have listed in their plan, but they've had multiple years of showing that those things are not going to get at the roots of the problem and so therefore are not going to likely correct the problem. Yeah, and so part of it is also, you know, they've promised funding for specific types of research like research into health disparities and I know obviously during the coronavirus pandemic there's been a lot of attention of sort of the disparities in our healthcare system and healthcare delivery, which is not new. The pandemic sort of just exacerbated that. And you've sort of pointed to like, they say they don't want to silo diversity issues, but at the same time, they're sort of saying like, these are the types of programs we want to fund. Can you talk a little bit about that sort of conflict? Let me start by saying that health disparity research are absolutely needed to peel away the layers of what was sort of brought to light with the coronavirus pandemic. However, the funding disparity that we're talking about, when people submit proposals to the NIH for funding, 
we're saying that NIH's own data shows that the funding rate, the likelihood of a proposal from a Black PI to be funded is 55% less than the likelihood for an application from a white PI. What NIH and perhaps the folks looking at the data is not recognizing is the fact that it is quite possible that you're getting the bulk of your application in health disparity because this is one of the few areas that Black researchers are not outcompeted by the majority PI because they are likely to be the ones interested in studying health disparity for minority population. Right. Yeah. So it's sort of like because there's hasn't historically been research in that field, then Black principal investigators, PIs, as you said, are sort of saying like, okay, this is research that I'm passionate about because people aren't doing it. So I'm going to focus my research on that. So then what about researchers like yourself who are in like chemical engineering? Where does that leave them in terms of applying for you know research funding? That's exactly a great question to be asking. There are Black PIs who are interested in various other scientific and engineering problems. So that if NIH only tackles this problem by increasing funding for health disparity research, which is great, you get more of those applications in and you get more of those work done. But what NIH is saying is that's the only place we value the intellectual contribution of African-American and Blacks. Right. So we're talking about National Institutes of Health. You know, it's really important because they fund so much research. But talk about how important it is for the career of scientists to get these sort of big NIH grants. I mean, there's tons of different types of research funding you can get. Like, what's the significance of getting an NIH grant versus something else? So there is the National Science Foundation that funds scientific research broadly. But the amount of funding that an individual investigator could get from the NSF is quite small. Whereas the NIH, by virtue of the size of the federal dollars that they get allocated, has the power to award more research dollars to individual investigators. So we're talking about the tune of, at a minimum, $250,000 a year that a single investigator can get to do research. That's a big deal. And university structures are built around faculty needing to get those research dollars to do research to be productive. And it is now built into the backbone of how we hire faculty members how we promote faculty members, how we actually also give faculty members access to leadership positions, both within their university and nationally. So there's a lot roped into how a faculty member, professor at a university, sustains their career with research funding. So when you have a system where certain types of investigator, in this case, Black faculty members, are disadvantaged in how they're able to compete for those research dollars, then you start to build a gap. And that gap has lasting 
implication for the career. There's some departments where you can forget tenure if you've never gotten an NIH R01, which is the biggest research dollars that you can get as a single uh, investigator. Yeah, so the ripple effects of not getting these NIH grants is more than, okay, I can't do this specific research funding, or maybe I'm not getting as much funding or need to rely on a different source. It's more, it affects someone's entire career potentially as well. That's correct. Yeah. And so in your editorial, you also describe sort of that Black scientists spend twice as long on their grant applications as white scientists. Can you talk a little bit about the sort of process of applying for these grants and what goes into that and like what the decision makers at NIH are looking at when they're looking at applications and how sort of racial biases can like play into who gets the grants or not? Yeah, no, that's a great uh, question. I think it's always useful for the audience to get a sense of how this all comes about. The disparity begins to happen at the stage when individual reviewers, each application is assigned to at least three reviewers. And based on those initial scores, an application may rise up to the discussed level or not. So that's the first layer where this gap begins, where there is studies and publication that's come out showing that Black PI applications are more likely to get scored in a way that they don't make it to that discuss bar. Once we go into the panel to discuss the uh, proposals, there is also that additional layers, and we tend to see this biased language that comes up when we're talking about minority investigators, or in many cases, women investigators, the language that comes out with the study section, you could see some of those also playing out. You also see biases playing out in the context of where did the investigator get their PhD, right? The bulk of our Black and African-American faculty member in our universities would have trained from HBCUs, historically Black college and universities. And those kinds of mindset of elite university versus not can play in into how I, as a reviewer, views the quality of the investigator because NIH asks us to score the quality of the researcher. So you sort of proposed, like, and other researchers as well, is having diversity be a criteria, the diversity of the research team in sort of moving through this process. But that's not part of the NIH's plan, is it, and what they released? Correct. We do not see that in this release plan. In fact, I personally did not see anything in that plan that addresses their scientific review process, which is where the disparity emerges. So I'm hopeful that that means that they're working on that separately and they weren't ready to roll it out, mm-hmm. but they cannot fix this problem without fixing that process. So in our minds and, and myself and my co-authors, there are two ways about it. NIH can say, okay, we need to revamp our review process so that this disparity that's showing up goes away. If we're not willing to do that, then the alternative is to, on the back end, just adjust the Mm -hmm. disparity, 
right? So that as engineers, we think about correction factors all the time in our experiments. If we see, if I'm doing, if I'm taking a measurement and I see that with every measurement, I have a 20% error and it's consistent. In the back end, we can introduce that as a correction factor so that our actual value will be corrected by 20% all the time, if that makes sense. If you have an error that is consistent and it's been consistent over a decade and you're not going to fix the measurement or the the process that's giving you that error, then you can just simply on the back end correct it by adjusting your funding rate by that deficit. And I mean, I think we talk a lot about sort of these programs that encourage women and different you know, minorities and people of color to get involved in the STEM fields and to become researchers, to get interested in science. But I think this piece of, okay, what happens once people actually decide on a career and get into doing research, um, you know, it's not just a matter of encouraging people to get interested. It's a matter of how do you keep people in and how do you keep them progressing in their career. Could you talk a little bit sort of about that disconnect, I think, because I think people within the field are very public about saying, oh, we need to increase diversity. We need to increase diversity, but like not until very recently want to acknowledge the sort of systemic issues within the actual career trajectory. So that's a great question. And in fact, we opened our cell editorial with that. You see here in a major component of NIH's plan is to put more money into the pipeline, bring in diverse students, trainees into the pipeline. But we've been doing that for several decades now. What happens is, yes, we get more undergraduate students, Black and African-American and Hispanic and Latinx coming in and signing them up for science and engineering majors. And they go in the classroom and they are one of a few and none of their instructors look like them. There is a huge psychological impact of that that is negative in how students experience the classroom. So many of the students that we've worked hard to get to that point eventually leave those disciplines. We see this a lot in engineering. Then, of course, the few that survive, we do a lot to get them into graduate programs so that they can get PhD, which is what really solidifies your path towards academic research and biomedical research. But then, again, they see very few faculty members that look like them. And the ones they see, they see how much work and stress that is happening to those faculty members. So in the end, a lot of federal dollars going into this pipeline programs end up being wasted because you don't fix a major part of the bottleneck. Yeah, and so obviously you have sort of reached that point where you're that successful faculty member and you know mentoring and encouraging people. You have your own research lab. Can you tell me a little bit about what sort of sparked your interest in chemical engineering To begin with, what was it that attracted you to the field and then sort of kept you going along um, despite all these sort of like barriers that you just described? I always was a kid that was curious about the machinery of the human body. How does the human body work? 
particularly our immune system, what keeps us alive. And naturally, growing up, I was going to be a medical doctor, right? Because that is how the people who fix our body surely must know how our body works. But then, of course, as an undergraduate taking biology courses and, and recognizing that, at least at that time for me, and I apologize for all my biologist colleague, I, as an undergrad, I just didn't see room in the biology curriculum for to ask questions and to build things. And so then that sort of moved my trajectory. And, and I remember back then we had computers where you could put in information. So I went in and put all the information of what I liked and what I didn't like. And it came back saying, you should think about chemical engineering. Now, how did I make it this far? I would say it's a series of accidents <laughs> because I just happened to go to my undergrad at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, UMBC. And I just happened to connect with the Meyerhoff program, which is one of the, well, the leading program in training African-Americans uh, and Black undergrads and sending them along to graduate degrees. And then it just also happened that at the time, I was one of the very few Black undergrads who happened to have an African-American faculty member in my department. Very rare, okay? So Dr. Janice Lumpkin was a Black woman that looked like me. And so naturally, when I needed to do research, I emailed her and she said, come on in. That I think was the singular point where my trajectory was changed to somebody who was going to be a faculty member. Wow. So it really was, I mean, seeing someone that looked like you in the career that you wanted and being like, I want to be in this lab. I mean, that really shows the power of sort of how do we not just have these programs like the one you participated in that's like encouraging African-American and Black students to pursue scientific careers, but also just seeing someone in the department and saying like, I can do this. There's someone leading the way. There's someone there helping me. Yeah, we should not discount the power of visual representation. Just seeing somebody that looks like you doing it allows you to believe you can do it. And when you run into difficulties along the way, you don't internalize them as linked to you, your identity because you've seen someone like you who has done it. But if you've never seen anybody that looks like you, when you run into those difficulties, it is an easy trap to fall into to, to think you can't do it. I always give an example of my first engineering class at UMBC. It was fluids, chemical engineering course. I was the only African-American Black student in the class. And my first exam didn't go the way I'd hope. And the first thing that came to my mind is engineering is not for me. And I remember the next day going to my professor, Dr. Julie Ross, who's now Dean at Virginia Tech, incidentally. And I said to her, I'm sorry, I just wanted to let you know that I'm going to go drop this class. And I think engineering is not for me. And that wow. was, <laughs> and she laughed so hard. And I was startled that she laughed so hard. And she looked at me and said, of course, engineering is for you. 
of course you can do this. And then here's what we're going to do. And she made a plan, right? I ended up finishing the course and still ended up actually getting an A in the course. But that moment of somebody not blinking and communicating very forcefully to me that, of course, you belong. That was another important moment. And I often reflect back now in that moment, why was Julie Ross so convinced that I could do it? It was, you know, likely because her colleague, Janice Lumpkin, the Black woman, communicated visually to her so that when she saw the next Black girl, she has no doubt that a Black girl can do engineering because her colleague, her mentor in some ways at the time, was a Black woman. Wow. That's really powerful and just shows the importance of like what seems like a small conversation. You know, that's what basically kept you in the program and got you to where you are. So I want to sort of circle back on, um, you know, we've been talking a lot about the NIH funding and how to close the disparities. What do you think is sort of like the next step in terms of like fixing those issues? Like what, what do you hope that the NIH sort of commits to, or are there some models that you think have been working really well that could be implemented? Yes. This kinds of disparity is not new to NIH. There was a time when there existed a funding gap for women applying to the NIH relative to their male counterpart. And NIH fixed that. We're not sure how they did, but the gap has since disappeared, right? Women are being funded at the same rate as men. There was also another point where NIH saw that younger investigators, junior investigators, were getting plummeted by reviews. And so there was a funding gap where senior PIs were more likely to be funded than junior PIs. NIH, of course, tried to do all kinds of things similar to what they're proposing now. Let's train the junior PI on how to write proposals. Let's mentor them. And none of those things were fixing the disparity. So then NIH instituted a correction factor, a bump, so that for any new faculty member coming in, for your first R01, whenever it goes to a review, whatever score you get, you get a, a range of 5 to 10% bump, which then allows more of those proposals to be funded. And at the time, NIH thought this was important enough because, of course, you want to make sure that more of the new generation can be sustained so that your pipeline of scientists and engineers does not shrivel and shrink, Right. We were asking in our editorial for NIH to consider such a similar thing because, again, one of the key mission of the NIH is to train a diverse biomedical workforce. Right, right. So what do you think it's going to take for some of these sort of proposals that you've outlined in terms of like adding diversity of the team as a sort of factor in receiving grants, like what do you think it's going to take for that sort of change to really happen at NIH and really overhaul their system? I think it's going to take NIH being bold and committed. 
the argument we made to the NIH is us as researchers that apply to NIH, we listen to whatever NIH tells us to do, right? If NIH says from now on, we will be looking at the diversity of the investigator team because we believe, and they have this on their website, that diverse team generates the best solution. There is a lot of data that backs this up. And NIH in communicating this in many of their web pages believes this, right? So there is value to the United States competitiveness on the global stage by making sure we leverage the diversity of our people, the diversity of thought, the diversity of people, the diversity of experiences in how we do our science, right? We will simply generate more technology better technology this way. That's Lola Aniola Adafeso. She's a professor of chemical engineering at the University of Michigan. Lola, thank you so much for taking the time and being a guest on Undisciplined. Thank you so much. I totally enjoyed my conversation with you and I call on all your listeners to join us in calling for equitable funding for our Black PIs our Native American PIs, our Latinx PIs. Thank you. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio. And if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us every Thursday at 10.30 a.m. on UPR. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Naomi Ward. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Shoshana Buxbaum. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.